I really, I really would tell most people to, yeah, they have to realize they're in this game. They're in this structure. And if you don't realize you're in the structure, like you're saying, if you don't realize that those guardrails are there and you're just continuing down the path, I think you're, you know, unfortunately you can't go back and get that time back in many ways. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this episode of APM Success. I'm here with Dr. Tony Volo. Uh, Dr. Volo is an anesthesiologist, and for everybody out there who's like, Justin, you've been doing so much about pain management lately, let's let's show a little love to the anesthesia crew. This is your episode. So Dr. Volo, cardiac trained, and he has a number of different you know, things he's working on right now. And I'm interested in talking about his career journey and also his psychological journey and his, uh, you could call it like an identity journey a little bit. Medicine is a, is a vocation in which identity is very strong because of the amount of blood, sweat, tears, money, time goes into forming a physician. And I've been really interested in getting to know Dr. Volo's story and hearing about how that identity has evolved. So Dr. Volo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. Big time listener to your podcast. As I told you before, before uh, you found me, I'd found you over a year ago. So I'm really happy to be here and, and very happy to share my journey. And that's really what I'm, what I've been trying to trying to do lately is just share what I've learned and help other people if they're in my position. Awesome. So give us a sense of your, the current scope of your clinical practice, and then we can dive into your journey. Sure. So currently I work as a locum tenants contractor. I do have cardiac anesthesiology, fellowship training, echo board certification, and that's the primary, primary way I'm using my anesthesiology skills and my training background. I also did a ICU, a critical care fellowship, and I previously worked as an intensivist half the time in the cardiothoracic surgery ICU and as a cardiac anesthesiologist. But since I made this transition, I've just been focusing on the anesthesiology realm, and we can talk a little more about why that is. I heard through the grapevine that there's going to be a cardiac board cert. Is that the case? That's correct. The first iteration of that is December. Uh, I did sign up for that. Most of my colleagues have everywhere that I've worked or people I did fellowship with for the most part. So yeah, it's, it's going to be yet another thing to do, uh, a way to get certified. I don't know how they're going to phase it in. It'll probably be like pediatrics was how it was originally not a fellowship or not a, not a clear ACGME pathway than it was, then it was a board certification. And I think they grandfathered in a lot of people that's my expectation. Yeah. Is that going to make you triple board certified? I mean, as my wife would say, it would technically be four boards <laughs> since it would be cardiac, ICU, anesthesia, and then technically the, the, the TEE certification that you do at the end of uh, cardiac fellowship for the most part. But what's another board cert between friends? Yeah. I mean, what's another thing to keep up with and another, another annual dues, another, another set of... Yeah. Uh, CME, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you were an employed physician for a long time, then you made a pivot. Tell me about sort of your career journey. What drew you to medicine? For the most part, I was not like a lot of my colleagues that I met in medical school. I was not someone that saw myself as a physician at an early age or dreamt of having an office with, you know, the diploma behind them, for example. No pun in, no, no comp no no comments on on your office there, which you have a nice setup. Or, or having that white coat or any of those sorts of things. I really was drawn to the field of medicine as someone without any family member or anyone that I knew personally besides my own physician growing up. And so for me, it was the challenge. It was the sort of academic rigor. It was that way of being challenged, going into college and being in a big university setting. I was at NYU. So I think it's probably the biggest undergraduate private school enrollment in the country, maybe still. A lot of people in your classes you know, thousand people taking chemistry, thousand people taking biology, you get those tests back and it's, it's sort of determined where you're going to be based on how some of these tests go. So you have friends that go from, they want to be a, 
a doctor and then it's, they want to be a dentist. And then the, the third test comes and then you're, you know, you don't, they don't talk to you anymore. And you're thinking about business. <laughs> yeah. Then something else. And a lot of them have come to great success, which is fantastic. So I got into medical school at Mount Sinai, had a great time there. Medical students stayed for anesthesiology residency, picked anesthesia because I really like the personality fit day to day. And I think that's what a lot of my friends who went into various fields found is that it, whatever resonates with you, it might be the work-life balance. It might be some sort of vibe that you get. But for me, it was that, that personality fit of how people wanted to spend their time and their attention inside, outside of work, how they want to take care of patients. And I also like the balance of the critical nature of it. And then a very relaxed nature of it. You know, the, 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 all the memes and stereotypes are accurate as they are with everything being lazy, coffee, hanging out, doing Sudoku puzzles. But the truth is it's sort of like being a right fielder. As I explained to medical students going into it in professional baseball, you go to the baseball game, you see someone in right field, you're in the bleachers. You're like, this guy doesn't look like an athlete. They don't look that great. You know, they're a good hitter. You know, what do they really do? They're just standing here, waving to the crowd, waving one out to people. And then a guy hits a rocket shot in the gap, one hops the wall. This person gets over to it, bare hands it, steps on it with his right foot, so to speak, fires it in without any hesitation, without any pro hop, et cetera, holds a guy to a single. No one notices, but that's actually the execution of perfection of that play. And that's sort of the anesthesiologist's job is for people to not realize the essential nature of it and the and how things can get out of hand very quickly if it's if it's foregone. So then I did, uh, I wanted to do more training. I wanted to, I saw, I had some mentors that did cardiac anesthesia half their time and did cardiothoracic surgical intensive care half their time. And so I really wanted the challenge of both. I wouldn't say I was drawn to one specifically. I liked the idea of having a balance of, you know, wearing pajamas half the time, wearing dress clothes half the time you know, you're always going to have the frustrations related to whatever your job is and being able to bounce back and forth between the two sort of frustration worlds uh, made me feel like I would be less likely to be annoyed, frustrated, et cetera. And I specifically wanted to go somewhere else to do that. I went down to Emory in Atlanta to do those two years, which was a fantastic training for both of them. I, I really got, uh, I really, it was a privilege to do that both at Mount Sinai and then train there especially. And then I came back, my wife is my now wife is from this area and so drew me back to New York a little bit. And then I served as an attending, splitting my time 50-50 between the, the unit and cardiac anesthesiology back in Mount Sinai. Had a great time for five years for the most part through COVID, through the craziness that was in New York City, a very unique time. It's almost hard to remember it for that really first surge of three months. So that was my background leading up. And for the most part, I had a very good time. I knew what I was getting into. I'd been there as a resident. I think a lot of people have that experience. You know, they know what they're getting into if they're staying in academic medicine. And I definitely did. And over time, I just got worn down by all the, the non-patient care things, by all these little friction points. And it was frustrating to say the least. And over time, it really... It really took a toll on me. And I think my wife took the brunt of it, seeing my frustrations or me venting to her as a highlight of my evening uh, about what's going on and the inefficiency of here and how this is working out. And can you believe X, Y, Z? Things that aren't specific to any location, things that are going to be happening anywhere. And so for me, after about three and a half years after COVID, really didn't have anything to do with COVID, to be honest. And as a little aside, I would say the most meaningful time that I looked forward to going to the hospital by far was during COVID every time I walked to the hospital. Mm. And that was a very scary time for a lot of people at that time. If, if, if any of the, the audience can put themselves back in this mindset of no one knows what's going on and people are really sick, but I actually really loved that it was so clean, that it was so just the job. It was none of the nonsense. It was no VIP. It was no this, that. It was really, I didn't have any surgical input. And in a surgical world, you have that. There was no, there's no accessory consultants. It was just critical care. It was just team leadership. A lot of people wanted to help. It was a really good time. So sorry to get sidetracked. 
I, where where was I, Justin? I'm that was sorry. great. So I'm actually going to go a little further down that path for a moment, and then we can come back to the, the career journey. I'm curious as you reflect on the you know all the board cert, the the sort of ancillary training and the additional expertise that you have accrued over the years. If you reflect on those a little differently, based on what you know now, what would you counsel somebody? Because I've I've heard anecdotally there's a lot more people not doing fellowships than there has been in the past, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that. But I'm curious on how you reflect on the fellowship question. Yeah, I my recommendation to people is, or, or I guess the way here's an example. You know, a resident I'm working with in the operating room, anytime in the past, really five years, five and a half years now out of out of fellowships. And they they sort of say, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about cardiac or I'm thinking about ICU because they know that I might have done those. And my first approach, honestly, with them will be, why would you want to do that? Not because I don't think it's it's a worthwhile specialization or you're helping a niche of patients. I, I really think it's an ideal one to be in. Usually the cardiac surgical world patients are taken care of very well, a lot of attention. And that's what I really wanted to be part of a very good team wherever I was. And I, and I definitely was at the hospitals I've trained at, worked at, et cetera. But I think people overlook how much expected lifetime earnings they're giving up. I think they overlook another year of not only not making that income, but maybe not starting your life. If you were like me to some degree of maybe moving working where you want to be. And I think people just do it to stay on the, how do you say the moving walkway, the, the, the escalator people in medicine, for the most part, if you, if you get in, you can be in a pretty good position to set yourself up for a pretty reasonable life. And I know you've talked a lot about earning degradation over time and, and those sorts of things. And I totally agree. But if you, if you don't get off that escalator, if you don't get off that treadmill at some point, you're not really starting. And I think it's most important to start. I think it's most important to have a really good reason. Do you want to go to the West Coast and you really feel like if you did a pediatrics fellowship and get in or get a job or be more marketable? Or, you know, I think at least so far, it's helpful to me that I've taken positions that are looking for a quote, cardiac anesthesiologist with background and real training to work these contract assignments. So for me, it's been beneficial. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's the right move to just assume to do more training is going to be beneficial. I think that there's I think there's definitely a change and people want to get started working. And I think the job force needs that. Yeah. Episode 161 for our listeners. So apmsuccess.com slash 161. I was just looking this up. I did an episode called The Shocking Opportunity Cost of a Fellowship or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But quick spoiler alert, it's somewhere in the 1.3 to 1.4 million dollars portfolio value at age 65, delaying attending right. by one year and earning a fellow salary, which, you know, if you're going to have a very meaningful income for 30 years, we can probably agree. It comes out in the wash. It doesn't matter. Do what you want to do with your life. And if it clinically makes you happy, go for it. But to the extent that you're like, oh, this is going to be important for my wealth building journey, it actually often costs you money unless your fellowship results in a higher expected income, which you could argue cardiac does. Pain puts you on a different track. Many of the other right. fellowships, it's a coin flip at best. So yeah. my observation from the other side of like looking at the economics of things is the same. Like do it if you have conviction about it. But right. if you're, if you, and also knowing that medicine, I think does select for professionals who like the structure, like the path, like knowing that you don't, it's not open architecture, or at least it is within guardrails. Right. If you like the guardrails and you're making a decision because the guardrails are like a security blanket for you, just understand that there is a real cost and it's a, it's a good opportunity to question the assumptions to say like, is this a security blanket moment or is this really a passion? And I think that growing in the sort of self-knowledge and the ability to evaluate one's own perspectives, uh, that's a life skill that will pay off for forever. But that's a perfect time to develop it is like CA2 year if you don't already right. have it. And and let's not forget that for anyone listening that's maybe not in the medical world, because most people will be, the CA2 year, PGY3, so your third year of residency, we're talking someone that is on average 28 to 30 years old. So you've been studying, 
you've been working long hours, you've given up the majority of your 20s, and now you're choosing to maybe offset another year. You do get paid, right? You get paid in these residency years, these fellowship years. And luckily, the pay recently has improved. I do not know how it matches with inflation, et cetera. And with more training, you get a slightly higher, higher amount, and then it matters where you are. I really, I really would tell most people to, yeah, they have to realize they're in this game. They're in this structure. And if you don't realize you're in the structure, like you're saying, if you don't realize that those guardrails are there and you're just continuing down the path, I think you're, you know, unfortunately, you can't go back and get that time back in many ways. That's right. So let's go back to your story. So you were in the midst of COVID. You were enjoying the single focus that it created. Man, those are crazy. We were in Philly at the time. And I remember listening to like the conference calls in the morning that my wife was on and she was during residency and like creating new ICUs in places they don't already exist in the hospital and looking right. at news reports coming out of North Italy and they're like ventilating people in the parking lot and we just have no idea what's going to happen. That was... I'm grateful to not be, I just remember like 10 out of 10 cortisol all the time. And it's, uh, it's good to look back on an opportunity to reflect with gratitude that we're not there anymore. But yeah, the silver lining for you, you've got your hands in the work and you're really enjoying that. And then eventually the sort of the pressure valve releases and you the focus broadens again. And perhaps the, the death by a thousand clicks thing that you sort of alluded to inserts itself into your life again. Tell me about that time in your life. Yeah, I think that was, so let's say I'm getting into finishing year three and of being an attending and, you know, working, being 35, I think at this point, maybe 36. And I'm starting to realize, I'm starting to have a lot of frustrations. I'm starting to be exasperated all the time. I'm a pain to be around if I just came from work. And most of it had to do with just the, the sort of accumulated stress or accumulated time that you're there because you have to imagine certain sorts of jobs, which I chose, right? I chose to be on this path where I did in the in-house nights in the ICU, where I do long stretches in the ICU, where, you, where you're consistently doing 75 plus hours to be conservative of your time and attention there in a week, where you're doing cardiac anesthesia call and you have dissections and you have heart transplants and very challenging quaternary care level things that happen at big hospitals in a big metropolitan area. And so with more and more time, I was being beaten down. I didn't realize what was causing it. I just was very frustrated. So I would be very frustrated at everything, all the little things, all, all again, all the non-patient care related things, all the, all the stuff from the hospital. And so what I started to realize is I have to find a way to change what I'm doing. And so really talking with my wife and coming to the conclusion that I have to find a way to make a little change. I have to find a way to iterate where I am, I thought was the best approach. So really for about six months, I planned, okay, what does it look like if I work less and I make less and, and how do I scale back? And what would I prefer scaling back on the ICU or anesthesia? And I, I literally for six months, I would talk with people about it in my family. I talked about the money. I talked about all that. And I would save, you know, probably at least one night, if not two a month in the hospital, I would probably save one cardiac anesthesia call. And my group was very forgiving with my time on that perspective anyways. And I would probably, you know, overall, I'd spend a few less days in the hospital. So it wasn't a big change, but I would have lost almost a quarter of the income if I, if I had done that, something like that. And so I went to one of my directors and I said, I had this you know big meeting. I'm all ready to go. I'm like, Hey, so I would love to work less. And I understand that I get paid less and I'm totally happy with that. And they listened very considerately. And then they, they told me no. And I, I had not considered that that would be an answer. And so I sort of repeated myself. I'm like, Oh no, maybe I didn't say it right. You know, so I'm, totally expecting to get paid less. And I'm just going to drop that down. So instead of doing this many, I do this many and they're listening. They're like, yeah, no, we're not. And then they explained their position and it didn't have a great explanation. And, but I tried to be nice about it. Cause in my head, I'm realizing like, there's no, I'm not going to get anywhere if we're not going to have a discussion. So we had a very nice talk and I walked out of that meeting and I realized 
that I'm going to have to find some other way. So instead of making a small change where I am, I'm going to have to consider going somewhere else. And I was in no rush. I just, the seed had been planted that I needed to make a change. And because I deliberated that for six months, even though they said no, I really had, the decision had already, it had already happened for me. The light bulb had switched. The mindset had switched. Everything I needed to get started away from the trajectory and pathway that I've been on had begun. And so, you know, I did what I think everyone would have done maybe in that situation. You look at other jobs in the area, other jobs, very similar. Where do we want to move? Where do we not want to move? Okay. We don't want to move. What do other jobs look like? Okay. Well, you take call, you do this. It's like, okay, it's the same sort of thing. Do places really want to hire a part-time person? Okay. Well, they really take big relative pay cuts. Okay. It's, it's going to be a new place with new issues. It's going to be more or less the same problems. You know, the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't. So it's, it's like, why even move? Well, I can't scale back. So then I start looking at other things. And in the background is always this idea because you get emails. I get the emails. I know your wife gets the emails. Everyone gets these emails all the time from recruiters. I get the emails. Dear Dr. Harvey. There you go. And like, there you I go. don't think you guys know who you're talking to right now. <laughs> They're, hey, it, it cast a wide net, right? They do cast a wide net. That's right. So I, I have the idea that there's a world of being a contractor, of, of, following through with locum tenants contract or working directly with places. But that seems so foreign. It seems so far away. It seems so scary. Why would you try this? How do you do this? How do you get, I don't really understand. It seems scary. And I'd chosen to, I've been a very conservative person when it comes to making life decisions, going on the path of medicine, financial decisions. If my brother were here who works in finance, he'd be like, yeah, Tony wants no issues. He wants if Vanguard's working for him, he's going to stay with Vanguard. Even if Schwab, the interface is better and the customer support's better. Oh, he has 57 loans out. He wants them consolidated, even though he'll lose some benefits of interest rate because he'd rather have one payment when he's in residency and not think about it. So I luckily was talking to people openly. It's just about like, hey, what do you, what do you think? You know, I'm having a tough time. And of all people, again, my wife, who's fantastic, she goes, you know that this Palm Credit attending that I worked with in a different ICU, you know that they've been only doing locum contracts for the last two years. They left just before COVID. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And she's like, oh, you should talk to her. So I go to someone at the hospital. I talk to another person about this individual, get the phone number, talk to the person, two pages of written notes about it, jump in, the water's warm. My kids joke, they see me more than they ever did. I work one week upstate. And she lives in Brooklyn and her kids are annoyed. She's home too much. And she's like, she's like, and I, and I, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I I work less. I get paid less. She's like, but I'm really, I'm Tony. I cannot tell you how dialed in I am when I'm there. I said, well, so I think about it more. I'm like, okay. And again, I'm talking to people. I'm sort of manifesting it by talking and, and talking to colleagues. I'm on the phone with a former med student classmate and we're talking about it. We're just catching up. He lives in the West coast. He goes, Hey, you, you know that you should just talk to our friend so-and-so. I'm like, why would I? Yeah, I, I, I talk to him all the time. He's like, you know, for the last seven years since residency, he only does emergency medicine locum contracting. And I, I said, I didn't know that at all. So now I'm on the phone with him specifically to talk about this. We talked for an hour and a half. I have three pages of notes. I have phone numbers of people to call and I'm learning stuff. There's all these little tips and thoughts, how it works for them, the financial implications, Again, same thing, jump in the water's warm. And then finally, I'm just texting with someone who doesn't work where I work anymore, who moved to another hospital in the city. And they say, hey man, you know that your friend who you did residency with is doing locum, you know, 40 miles from where you are right now. And I said, no, I didn't know that at all. So then I call that friend who I'm already close enough with that I talked to again. And so it's right in front of my face. And he's saying, you know, jump in. The water's not only warm, there's a towel for you. Everyone, they got drinks on the sidelines. You know, for the most part, he's like, this is great solution to the problem that you have, that I have, the frustrations that we have working in the, in the types of settings that you do. And so armed with three people, seven pages of notes, you know, I'm Googling all the time, thinking about it. And I'm saying, maybe this is the right thing to do. And then, so over the course of maybe a year, probably was a year from when I had that meeting to when I, it was almost a year to lock in like my first assignment and tell my former employer that I was going to leave, you know, many months down the road. 
And so if it weren't for reaching out to people and having that connection and, and knowing that it was possible, I would not have been able to do it on my own. I want to zoom in on one thing that you just shared, and then we'll continue on the, the, the road here. Something that I see commonly is what I call organizational inertia when it comes to having the conversation of, listen, I need to go point eight for personal reasons because I want to do something else with my life other than have all of it consumed with the full, the 1.0 version of this. And I understand it'll cost less and what you just shared. And then the, sorry, we don't do that here. And I would say actually what you got was even a, a, a better version. Cause I think it's the way you described it. You're talking with somebody who is at least a stakeholder who understands the big picture to some extent and is sort of, they're probably handcuffed by policy or whatever. They're afraid if we let Dr. Tony do this, then all their friends are going to want to do it too. And then we're going to have a Maybe, staffing yeah. crisis. I think that's like the worst case that perhaps created that policy. There's another version of this where you're not even able to have a conversation with somebody who's vested in the outcome. You're talking to an HR person and they're like, I don't, you know, sorry, I, I don't care. And they don't even have the vision for the implications of not flexing a little bit in ways that are important to the physicians. Either way, the outcome is the same, that there's a realization by the physician who's trying to have this conversation that Medicine Inc. doesn't know you or care about you doesn't know what's good for your life. And if you want a life that looks more like the way you want it to look, then you've got to swerve off from between the guardrails and a little right. bit carve your own path. And I, I do think that the people that I've seen that have done that have found it to be the way that you have, I think like invigorating and empowering, but it does, it is an act of faith taking that first step. And I think you calibrated your leap well by having these conversations. Um, it is unfortunate when I see, and I do see this, that docs that are interested in that feel like they need that for their life, but they just can't bring themselves to take that step. So what happened next for you when you decided, okay, I think I can do this. Now what? Right. So the actionable steps, and I've tried to outline this for people many times, and I've thrown it up on my blog. I've thrown it up on LinkedIn. I basically didn't know how else to do it. So I reached out to every single agency, recruiting agency that existed at the time on the NALTO registry. The, I don't even know what it stands for. The uh, North American Partners and Locum Tenens Organization, something like that, NALTO. And they have a directory. And there's no real enforcement, but at least they say, if you're a NALTO member, you're going to try to represent your clients and things like this. So I just stuck to that. I didn't know where else to start. And not the companies that aren't on there can't be good as well. There's a lot. So I think I, it was over 50 either direct emails to a person or filling out an intake form. And I had like three days off in a row because I was post-call from, I think, the ICU. So I'm like, okay, I have a new email address. Got to get a new email address. Yes. Ideally, you get a new phone number too. Ideally, I did not have a new phone number. And I basically said, you know, the first 20 individual, the first 20 people that I'm going to talk to are the people that I'm going to call back or if I miss their message. So then I'm hearing all these things. I'm on the radar. I'm getting a lot of emails, at least for jobs. And the first thing I realize is this is tough to parse through because most of these people that you're talking to do not know what you really do and what when they're not specific to anesthesiology. They might not be specific to whatever it is. They they might not. Unfortunately, they they might just be very new to this. It's a, it, it might. I don't know the pay scale of these things, um, but there's not a lot of background to have. So it was tough, but luckily I found one person that was very easy to talk to, seemed very experienced, and I've never even done a contract with them at this point, but I would recommend this her to anybody, and I have, because she answers, she gets back to you, gets me more information, wants to work with me, wants to find something for me, and knows that's going to be the best thing. And that's what you're looking to find. For the most part, most I don't know what it is, but most of the guys that I found in this they're, they, I think they think they're trying to like sell me something and you don't have to sell me anything. And so I'm, honestly, I've never even followed up with anyone that was a guy. It just so happened. I don't know what that says. So that's a weird something. So I look for a job that's for me. I look for a job that might happen. I look for a job that sounds good. That might pay, pay well. What are the pay rates? Luckily for anesthesiology right now in the Northeast, let's say is a What's the line? Uh, as, as a future or Drake, it's, it's a great time to be alive. So this is a good time. And you had a great discussion 
with the guy who's an anesthesiologist and ran a ran a group in the South somewhere. I, I think it was earlier this year, and it was a great discussion. A, a, a little tangential, like a little little hit on it. I forget which one you had, Justin, and it was fantastic. And it was, and I sent it to a ton of people about some of the market dynamics that might be happening right now. So I don't know if you know which one that was. But sounds like Dr. Brian Schmutzler potentially, who's been on the show a few maybe. times. He's in Indiana, but has uh, doing work all over the place. Very dialed in on the practice, the institution side of things and does clinical plus staffing and other things. Right. Yeah. And so hearing that, hearing the dynamics that are happening, talking to all these people, seeing the numbers that are put in front of you. So then at my job, I start saying, how much do I make per unit time? Because everything's expressed in your rate per hour. I have no idea what I get paid per hour. So then I break it down per hour and I try and say, okay, what's a 403B worth? And what I'm trying to say, like, what's everything worth? Yeah. And I mean, I I didn't even see an anesthesiologist. I still haven't seen an anesthesiology job that was in this region for 250 an hour or less. And I, I mean, even if I am as, how do you say, um, liberal with the numbers as possible, I, I did not find a way to make my total hours spent in the hospital add up to more than 250 an hour. And so then it's I started real realizing- Red pill, blue pill moment. Anybody right. who hasn't seen the matrix, there's this sort of binary opportunity where you take the red pill, you unplug from the matrix, you're existing in the real world, which is a world that is dangerous and difficult, but it's, it's reality. Or you take the blue pill, you go back to sleep, you remain plugged into the matrix and having your every need catered to in this sort of artificial way. And this is a real, like, don't do this calculation, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Unless you're ready to take that red pill, you find out the hourly wage, even including the benefits. Then you look at locum's land, which by the way, you could, you might find right down your street, or you might be able to find right. without requiring a move that could have a meaningful percentage increase in terms of total comp. Again, it's your life. It's your time. It's your family. Got to, got to take control. Right. And I think that move thing is definitely a point that we'll get back to because I yes. think that's a, a, a common piece, but also a misconception for the most part. So yeah, I did these calculations and I then realized I don't have to make less because I want to work, you know, less than 60 hours a week or, or whatever it is on, on, you know, average. Then I started saying, oh my gosh, I can work because my wife's an NP. So I, I'm, I think I've been ruined by living with her for almost six years or whatever it is because she works three twelves. So her commuting is significantly less per week. Her total hours obviously are very consistent, very different. And she doesn't have complaints and she deals with real, real critical issues in the hospital and real stress and people living and dying. I'm like, Oh my gosh, maybe I could do that too. So that was a, like you said, that was a real red blue, a red pill, blue pill moment. That was a real because up until then, people say, hey, you're going to have to pay for health insurance. You're going to have to pay for, you might have to pay for malpractice, for example. You, you might have to do other things. You, you, oh, you're not going to get the benefits. And then you just do a quick white coat investor search. And then you realize, no, that's not how this works at all. You, you, you have the opportunity for a bigger 401k commitment each year that maps with your income. It's not fixed to 20,000, whatever it is every year different, right? You have better ability to write off things, et cetera. All the stuff that you're better, better of an expert on than I am at this, at this stage. But so I started sort of proselytizing without knowing it to like, before I had a job, before I was moving, I'm just like, do you know what we get paid? Do you know? Like it wasn't bad where I worked is definite, was definitely a very good place to work. The pay was relatively good for an academic center, which I understand there's more limitations on. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't think where I worked was a bad place at all. I think it was fantastic. And I liked a lot of the people and I would go back there in a heartbeat if I could honestly get a little bit different ratio of time, but it was remarkable to see that. So, so I see that then I start putting in perspective, okay, well, how many days do I want to work? I hadn't even considered these things. And I was looking all over the country thinking like, oh, I'd go a week here, come home for a week, do anything like that. And my wife, even though it would be tough, she was very supportive of, Hey, you got to get started. You got to jump into this. E eventually you can't just, we can't just ideate the whole time, right? We, we have to do something. Right? I always love the Chris Williamson quote, the, the podcaster. He's like, you know, what is it? Thinking about doing the thing is not doing the thing. Writing a post about how you're going to do the thing. Talking to your friends about doing the thing is not doing the thing. So you have to do it. So finally I found 
an opportunity I liked. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. They didn't want to have me at this place uh, in Albany. Okay. I found another place that was a better fit for me that was cardiac specific. I would have to fly to, but it's somewhere I was familiar with. And so I, you know, I'm like, oh, so I basically signed my agreement. And then I told my employer, I gave him, I wanted to give over a hundred days notice, gave over a hundred days notice and took the leap. I would do that differently. And I would understand the implications of signing an agreement of your dates of availability and that that's not really, nothing's really locked in. And again, I've tried to write about this and talk to friends about this and talk, and I've talked to legal representation to, to get a better sense of it. But that was my first jump in. I was going to go try out something different. And I had a very mixed reception from a lot of people uh, that I worked with and used to work with. So, How so was it mixed? I had a lot of friends that were really people that you're in the trenches with, you know, people that are like, Hey, that do the same thing. Let's say that are like, Hey, good for you. You made, you made the decision. Like we know this is tough. Like you, you made a real decision. Congratulations for, yeah. for doing it. And then you had people, and then you have people that are just supportive that just miss you. Like nurse people that aren't peer colleagues, let's say, but they're also staff you work with the nurses, the te- janitors, people that I've seen for many years and you explain what's going on. It's not really, it's hard to understand, I guess. But then you have people that are like, why would you do that? I had one person who worked at a different hospital who called me up when they heard and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? And I explained, and they're like, hey, you, you should have asked me for a job if you want a different job. And I said, oh, would you have been able to blah, blah, blah? He's like, oh, no, you, you just take call. You do that. I'm like, so it's the same thing, and it's the same pay. They're like, no, no, but we have good vacations. And I'm like, I don't think you understand this thing. And then another misconception, which is, Hey, but if you ever want to get a job again, then you're going to be seen differently. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you've, you were doing a locum. So, so you know what that means? And I go, I don't know. It means I was working and sleeping better. I don't understand what that means. And their implication was that like, you're a lesser quality anesthesiologist or, or whatever physician or, or nurse that you are. I was like, okay, you know, I guess I run that risk. We'll see. Lo and behold, I think every one of my friends, including myself, so let's say eight friends, eight people that I know that have all done locum in the past few years, everyone has at least one time been offered a J-O-B at the place they're working at within the first week. Everyone has the same story, the first week or two that someone is coming to them. Uh, I had someone come to me in an MRI suite, who's the boss boss. The, one of the first days and is like, Hey, we got to have a meeting. We got to talk about this. Yeah. So there's, and you know, the numbers and everything we see, the, the need for people all over the place, all you have to do is go in gas works and see what is out there. Yeah. So that was my first move. I gave the notice. I had people make support, but for the most part, it was very positive. And it was a, it was a nice transition, you know, five years working in an academic medical center, getting a lot of experience. You know, I definitely would, we can talk about what I would recommend to other people, but I think that I wouldn't change anything that I've done to this point. Two things I want to zoom in on there and then we can keep going. The first is when somebody came into the MRI suite, the boss's boss, something to be aware of as a locum stock is there is an opportunity for your contract to be bought out by wherever you're working if they love you so much, but it costs a lot of money. So right. not only are you employable, but probably what was happening is Somebody's saying, listen, I know it's we're going to have to stroke a check for like 50 or 75 grand or whoever, whatever the amount is to the locums agency in order to take you from them and work for us. And we still, after having worked with you for four days, think that that's a good economic trade. So that tells you something about the marketability of even people, even people doing locums, if that was going to like impair your ability to get a job. We should, yeah, make sure we whisper that even more next time. Yeah, Yeah, I, yeah. That is, has not been my observation, but it's interesting that that is a, an idea that's out there. The second thing that I think Warren's mentioning, and this is an area of like, even for me, internal conflict. And I think you got at this with some of the mixed response that you got from your peers, which is there is a sense of collegiality and team and a sense of like, you know, you're, leave, you're leaving us. We're all trying. We're, we know it's not great, but there's we're all dealing with the same hardship and we thought you were with us. and there's a resentment perhaps. And I, as somebody who like needs healthcare, wants to have a good doctor 
and am married to healthcare. I understand the systemic. I mean, I don't. I understand. I I observe the challenges in the system, and there are a lot of things that I wish were different. And I understand that when I tell people to jump ship if it's not working for you, if literally everyone did that, there would be no healthcare left, or it would look very different. Right. And frankly, maybe that's what we need is like the defibrillation of doctors on mass doing all of this. But it is with a bit of a. It's not without reservation, I guess is what I'm saying. When I when I say do what's right for you, which you, you should and you need to, because you persisting in something that's very unhealthy is not going to fix a system that grinds doctors into dust, which is, I, I think, what I see frequently. But I'm sympathetic to the fact that we do need physicians and all different types of you know medical care providers and staff to, to do things that are hard and uncomfortable if hospitals are going to keep running and if the healthcare system is going to keep on moving forward. So I don't really have an answer there other than to say, I see the system that is very challenging. And if everyone did what I'm saying, it would be chaotic and perhaps not better. So that's a big asterisk that I just wanted to mention. Yeah, I, I think I think these are very good specific points because you, you do miss that team and the team is an important fact, but it's not for everybody. Making this change is not for everybody. And also staying there is not for everybody. And I, I think certain jobs, I posted this on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. I think if I remember correctly, the average person in a business J-O-B switches careers. This is based on LinkedIn data for the last whatever decade. Switches jobs every, it's right around three years. It's either right a little less or a little more. In medicine, that is definitely not the case for physicians. For nurses, might be different. I think it is different. I think switching job roles within I think switching to a different practice setting, I think getting that further education and taking a new job role, that happens more. I think nursing as a group does a great job of acknowledging and supporting all of those. But in the physician world, you're sort of trained, you're your person, you're done. You're, you're sitting at your, you're sitting at basically your earning income, your earning potential, or however I should say, your, the money you make per year is basically the same for your whole career once you're done. There's not a lot of room to grow. There's also not a lot of meritocracy, like in other jobs, right? So if you're ex if you're the best person at your job, you don't necessarily get a bonus. You you might get more work. And this happens in a lot of other job settings too, Wait, right? That's not like the same a certain as a bonus? No. It might not be. Well, you get paid while you do the thing. Yeah, that's true. So it's a really tough, it's a really tough and nuanced conversation about about why for some reason it's tough for physicians specifically to even consider a different path. Yeah. And I don't know what that is. I think it's the self-selection of the type of people like myself to some degree who got in there in the first place. And also because the examples aren't readily available. I had three examples of people to talk to right away and I didn't know. And two of them were people I if you told me, are you still friends with that person you talk, I would say, I would say yes, but I had no idea. So it's because they thought they'd have to whisper it at a cocktail party. Maybe. Yeah. So I, I want to wrap this up in a few minutes and I really appreciate your time, but I would love to know like practically, sure. tactically, mechanically, what are the couple of things where you're like, you know, healthcare, retirement, you know, the benefits and credentialing, MedMal, like how did you find that? What are the couple of resources that you leaned on? in order to get up to speed and make that less intimidating? Honestly, not to plug the show, but your show. So on this podcast, and I even, one of my first blog posts, as I told you, even embeds your video and you talk to the lady, uh, the lady that runs Aegis, I think, mm -hmm. the, an insurance thing. And it was a great discussion on malpractice insurance, the white coat investor. For the most part, I was able to glean very clearly, especially from these two, those two resources, and then just learning about them independently. So you're just Googling things. You're just going to webs. You're just seeing what's out there. And then it's very clear to realize, Hey, you have basically two options with malpractice insurance from the, from the really starting point, which isn't as clearly discussed. It's either you're paying it or someone else is paying it. So if you are through an agency or on a locum contract or per diem contract with a hospital, you're for the most part going to be covered by one of those two, either the agency's malpractice insurance that covers you at that site or for the duration, whatever it may be, or the site. And that's been my experience with most things. 
there was actually a job blocks from where I'm living right now. Watch out, there's a fire truck, so it might be a little loud here. And I talked to that GI doctor and I would have had to get my own malpractice insurance. So then I'm looking up, well, what do you do for that? And that was a little obscure to find the answer, but it seems like the answer is you can prorate your malpractice insurance if you're paying it yourself based on how much you work. Now, unfortunately, that job would have been basically one day a month. And so I don't think most malpractice carriers are going to prorate that or knock that down to that sort of FTE, let's call it. So then I found that there's independent. You can, you can get your own malpractice insurance per diem and pay a little bit more. I made a little description about that. I've shared that with multiple friends. So then you've got the financial implications that you get paid as a, you're going to receive a 1099. You're an independent contractor. You're your own business. You're contracting with your agency or with the client in uh, directly. And there's legal implications of all of these things. But for the most part, you're just agreeing to provide coverage on certain dates. And those dates, there's ways to get out of that contract um, for both you and the site or even the agency. There's stipulations in there because you're getting paid 1099, as you've talked about many times, as the white coat investor goes into, which I think is the best resource for that comprehensive nature of this, whatever, 15 years of information, you have a different ability to write off business expenses and you can put money in a solo 401k, put more money in there. This is my first year doing this. So this is new for me. And uh, you know, really the reason I'm here is because I guess I've been proselytizing the process or trying to on LinkedIn trying a little bit on Twitter, just because I, I think other pe- there's people that don't know that this is out there. And I think there's people that are just as frustrated or, or not in the right setting as I was that just want to consistently get to sleep or want to have one extra day off a week, or you just want to work eight hours, five days a week, like, like some normal business people, go figure. And I have friends that just do that. They work every week, but five hours or six or, um, or nine, 10 hours. And so you know, I came at it from this angle of, I I really just want to share this info. There seems to be a lot of piecemeal info and most of it, unfortunately, or, or maybe fortunately is from the locum agencies, which is great. But is that really giving that perspective that maybe the individual has, you know, there's lots of stories I have about good and bad things in this process. And I have friends with that too. And I know I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the, let's call it mentorship of the, of those three individuals that have given me the info or the the courage to just get started. I want to do the same thing. I want to make myself available to people to try and get them from just, just thinking about this to actually putting it into practice or realizing that this isn't for you. And that's okay too, because there's a lot of right today. They could tell me 30 days from now, we're, we're done with your contract. Thanks so much. And I'd have to find a new job and I'd have to credential again. But the truth is do not be scared of, credentialing. Credentialing is just paperwork. And if you have all the documents, you just send them to people. Don't be scared of going to a new place because if you're a skilled person, you're going to be able to deal with that. And it's only the first day once you don't have to do the first day every day. You know, you want to, if you want to build out your life, if you want to build out how you spend your time a little more deliberately, which I did, I didn't know I could have this much quote unquote control, but it's been a big benefit to my family. It's been a big benefit to myself. Every, every weekend, if there's a thing, all the aunties and uncles are like, Hey, you're not working. I'm like, Nope, not working today. And so I'm just around more. I'm not missing birthday parties. I'm not missing weddings. I'm not doing the stuff that I gave up in residency. And I'm sure your wife did too. I'm sure everybody has a story of a thing that they wish they were at. And they would have seen a person again, who's not here anymore, or you would have been able to go home and visit your family because things change. And I just, I just, you know, 40 years old, you just don't want to keep living on someone else's schedule. If you, if you don't have to, if people want to get a hold of you, where's the best place for you to be found? Tonyvulo.com, T-O-N-Y-V is in Victor, U-L-L-O.com, or really on LinkedIn. I'm trying to be on there a lot trying to be on Twitter a lot, trying to be engaged. But if people just want to reach out, just reach out on the socials and send me a message. Or if you want to like book a phone call, you know, all the fancy stuff, I I set that up too, because people thought that that would be easier for some people to get in contact, which so far it's been, it's been pretty good. I just really want to help people 
break down that mindset barrier to at least get started, if not go further. I was talking with a buddy of mine the other night. You got to be careful on Twitter because the risk return trade-off seems asymmetrical. People ignore you and ignore you and ignore you until something goes viral and you get blown up and you have people with pitchforks in your front yard. So LinkedIn is a much more civil place to be. Just my two cents. So you can do whatever you want, but that's something I have observed. Right. Someone with opinions, just take that with a grain of salt. In closing, I would love to hear just a little anecdote from your life about as you're making this transition, as you're getting off the plane in that city you've never been to and walking into that hospital for the first time, if you had a moment where it went from like abstract and intimidating to like, oh, I think I can do this. And how did that unfold for you? So full disclosure, the first place was somewhere, a city that I grew up in. So I didn't feel too alone. But when you're going to that new place and the way they do things is different, the layout's different. How do I call for help? How do I, you know, who am I working with? The truth is, it was not rough. It was, I had exceptional training. And I think most people that have except, truly exceptional training, you can really go anywhere. I have a high level of self-efficacy personally. So I know that I'm stripping away all the stuff that's not comfortable to me because that doesn't matter. Only the fundamentals matter every day. So I don't care that this is in a different drawer or whatever. If I have everything out and set up, even if it takes me two hours to do working alone, let's say, it doesn't matter. So the first day walking in and being thrown right in and meeting new surgeons and meeting new house staff and nurses, hi, my name's Tony. Nice to meet you. What can I do to help? And that's the approach I took as a resident. That's the approach I took when I was a new fellow in a new place, in a new city that I'd never lived in, didn't know anyone in. And the same thing when you're in a new hospital and you're just a person that's there a couple times a month. So that's what I would encourage people to do is just make eye contact, stand up straight, shake hands, say hello, and let that first impression be a strong one. You can do it. You, you've been through a lot. And if you've seen enough bad things happen and good things happen, you know that you only control so much. So take stock in that, stick to your fundamentals. And that's what I did. Awesome. For our listeners, there's a lot of a, a treasure trove of resources and things we talked about. Check out the show notes for this episode uh, for a link to Dr. Volo's website and lots of other stuff we talked about. Dr. Tony Volo, thanks for joining us today on APM Success. My pleasure. Thank you, Justin. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.